Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 118. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is author and professor William Irwin. William released a book in 2022 called The Meaning of Metallica, which follows up on 2007's Metallica and Philosophy. He's a distinguished service professor in the philosophy department at King's College in Pennsylvania. His other books include God is a Question, Not an Answer, The Free Market Existentialist, Capitalism Without Consumerism, and he's also kind of the editor-overseer of the philosophy and popular culture genre of books that include Seinfeld and Philosophy, The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Matrix and Philosophy, Black Sabbath and Philosophy is one of his. If you look at his author page on Amazon, you're going to see The Good Place in Philosophy, which I love The Good Place. Batman in Philosophy, Harry Potter, Avatar, Woody Allen, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Big Lebowski, Black Mirror, on and on and on, Doctor Strange. And uh, yeah, a lot of these he's the editor on, but uh, books that he has written himself, he's the guy, include the meaning of Metallica and Metallica and Philosophy. So obviously that was the reason to etra for our conversation. And this episode crosses over a, a little bit as you might guess, with one of my other podcasts, No Prize from God, which is conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between, given just the nature of of this work. But we talk a lot about the uh, religious overtones of some of Metallica's lyrics, about the existential questions, about James Hetfield's upbringing, the Christian science, and uh, just a, a lot of things that, I mean, are overlapping crossroads of my favorite topics <laughs> there's you know if you if we could have worked in like i don't know free speech and uh jessica alba and alfred hitchcock you know it's like we could have added like just a couple of other things we would add like all of my favorite conversational topics but uh this is a fun one check out william's books if this sort of stuff is interesting to you as well and remember, you can keep up with all things related to me and my various ventures at ryanjdowney.com rather than listing every social media handle and every podcast. I think I will give your ears a break and my voice a break as well and tell you to just go to ryanjdowney.com. I tend to have everything there and you can sort of spiral out and branch out from there if you so choose. And I would greatly appreciate it. I will say... If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave the podcast a five-star rating. Write a nice little review. Those really do help, and they help on uh, any of your preferred podcast platforms. So here it is, my conversation with William Irwin. This is Speak and Destroy. So I'm going to ask you a variation on something that I like to ask everyone, which is how you first got turned on to music in general, whether it was, you know, stuff you heard around the house, family members, whatever. And then at what point you realized it, it was going to be a significant part of your life that it wasn't, you know, because for a lot of people, it's like they like music. It's just one of many things they like. And then there's those of us where it becomes this dominating force that, shapes our identity what was your journey with music and then we can cruise into how that intersects with metallica right so i, I grew up in the 1970s and 52 now and so there was am radio uh and top 40 from the 70s that i remember hearing a lot of and 
during the 70s, there was a lot of nostalgia for the 50s, including I think my parents were nostalgic for the 50s and there was Happy Days and uh, the show Shanana with that group Shanana that, you know, would have all sorts of the 50s artists on. So that, that's the first music I can remember hearing and maybe the Sonny and Cher show uh, as well when I was really small. And uh, the, fir the first song that really gripped me oddly enough, was uh, The Village People, Macho Man, and uh, I, I loved that. I must have been seven at the time, and uh, but it, it wasn't like it was something important in my life. For a seven-year-old, baseball was much more important than music, probably not until uh, what would be junior high school, fifth, sixth grade, that music really started to become an important part of my life. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned this because I was just thinking about this the other day and I realized I've never talked about it with anyone, but there is something very kind of complex and confusing about that seventies and early eighties nostalgia for the fifties that for me, I'm, I'm a, a few years younger than you, but not by much. And as a, as a generation X kid, you know, growing up with happy days on the television and, uh, you know, even something like Laverne and Shirley, where you had the Lenny and Squiggy characters, of course, the Stray Cats in the early 80s when they had their hits. It really makes it this jumble where when I'm reflecting back on some of that stuff, you almost think it's from the 50s, right? Like you, you almost think about Happy Days as like a show from the 50s. <laughs> it's actually a show from the 70s that was set in the 50s. And then to think about like, you know, the Stray Cats, doing this like 50s rockabilly revival in the 80s how much closer time-wise they were then to the actual 50s than they are now right you know, now we're in the 2020s and you know stray cats still play once in a while doing 50s music and it's like it was already nostalgic in the 80s right. so yeah there's something very fascinating there about um the way that that period of nostalgia just 20 years later 30 years later now causes this thing where a couple more decades go by and it all sort of jumbles together. Even thinking about the Karate Kid and, you know, Mr. Miyagi's 50s cars. <laughs> you know, it all, it starts to, it's like, is the Karate Kid from the 50s? No, 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 that was the 80s, but so this like 50s stuff in it. And I don't know, it's pretty interesting how that mid-century time in America continues to dominate and, and infiltrate so much of culture in ways seen and unseen. Yeah, well, there, there was a certain innocence about the, the 50s, or at least the way that it was portrayed to us in the 70s. I mean, I suppose it wasn't the best of times for lots of people, but, but it sure seems that way when it's filtered through happy days. And uh, lots yeah. of the songs from the 50s are, are, are really happy. Uh, in a way that you don't get in, in, in lots of music. I mean, sad songs and heartbreak love songs and that kind of thing tend to make uh, the most popular music, but uh, there's just a really upbeat feel about so much of the 50s music and the way the 50s was portrayed on Happy Days and things like that. Uh, you know, you see an old 50s car and it seems, it seems like a happy mobile. Yeah, the simplicity and the... Uh... The optimism, and as you said, of course, there was an underbelly of swaths of society where the 50s weren't rad for them at all. But that Id idyllic portrayal of it, I suppose, you know, coming out of Vietnam and Watergate and the energy crisis and inflation and all this stuff that was happening in the 70s, probably people feeling really cynical and the, you know, hippie movement kind of dying out. And I, I suppose that probably explains a little bit of that nostalgia for a supposedly tranquil time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, part of it, I, I think was just people uh, aging into uh, adulthood or uh, middle adulthood and, and looking back at, at their times. And uh, they, they had some real sway in terms of uh, consumer purchasing power and uh, so shows and, TV and everything was marketed to them and it just sort of makes economic sense in that way. Yeah, sure. Uh, so where does uh, rock and hard rock enter your atmosphere? Yeah. Uh, so pr the, the first you know, real rock song I can remember liking was probably Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. 
and that's like 79 or 80, I guess. I'm in fourth grade and uh, that really gripped me and I probably bought that album. And uh, also at that time, Pink Floyd's The Wall was out new and even on AM radio, I was hearing uh, another brick in the wall. And mm -hmm. I remember just looking at the older kids, right? If I'm in fourth grade and the, the seventh and eighth graders are, are wearing uh, rock t-shirts and rock jerseys. And so I'm seeing Led Zeppelin, I'm seeing Pink Floyd, I'm seeing ACDC and uh, something about that just looks really cool and, and starts to appeal to me. And uh, probably the first uh, hard rock and, and metal acts that I got into fifth, sixth grade would be Ozzy and uh, ACDC. And Ozzy's been a, a lifelong uh, love for me. And uh, yeah, just uh, kept going from there. And it, and it really did become very important to me. I mean, uh, at that point, approaching on, on par with sports, which were my great love and uh, you know, it, it's just early adolescence and into adolescence trying to make sense of the world and what's it mean to be an adult and how do you transgress boundaries and what kind of risks you take. And there was something dangerous yet safe about, uh, you know, uh, a Led Zeppelin T-shirt or whatever it might be uh, that could strike a pose that an older kid was wearing and the music and uh, all of that. Was uh, the Aussie fandom, was that your gateway to Metallica? Yeah, it, it would have to be because I, I got into uh, Aussie with my best friend, Joe, uh, who I also mentioned a couple of times uh, in the book. He's uh, the friend who had first picked up Metallica's Ride the Lightning and made a, a cassette tape of that for me, which was my gateway into Metallica. And then I went and bought the, uh, the LP myself and uh, on and on from there. Yeah, sick. Um, you know, there are obviously this is Speeding Destroy and Metallica podcast, and we're going to talk a lot about Metallica, but there are several things in your uh, history, in your bibliography, if you will, that are uh, fascinating to me. Um, prior to this book, you've written uh, about uh, a lot of different subjects, uh, whether it's uh, economics and free market existentialist which is just just the title is amazing um god is a question not an answer is also an amazing title which I'll, i'm gonna back up to here in a second but you've also done um you know this pop cultural philosophical examinations in addition to metallica you did one a few years prior with sabbath and then you've also done simpson seinfeld and the matrix i wanted to mention about the seinfeld book I just had, by the time people are listening to this, the episode will have come out, but I just talked with Alec Berg, the co-creator of the show Barry, who of course worked on Seinfeld for I think the last, the second half of, of the show's run. And we talked a lot about Seinfeld and everything. That came about because uh, Metallica keeps popping up in Barry. <laughs> I don't know if you, oh, if you really? watch it on HBO, but there's a, a couple of moments it just happened again in the episode that aired just this week after I'd already talked to Alec. Barry created this collage representing who he is as a person. And in that collage was uh, the Garage Days picture of Metallica, which was on a poster that was in Barry's room in the in the pilot episode back in season one. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's a great show. I think I watched the first season, but I've got to catch up on, on the others. And I just had to laugh to myself. When you mentioned Alec Berg, because as I'm sure you know, his name features in uh, in a Seinfeld episode where they're yep. talking about a great name, Alec Berg. Yeah, uh, and I never knew that was uh, one of the writers until I don't know, not too long ago, and seeing his name in the credits for another show. He's written for lots of great yeah. shows, including Barry, and uh, yeah. so there, there it goes. Uh, and Curb, and he was the uh, showrunner on Silicon Valley. That's and, it. Um, That's yeah, it. and he—he he was at some of Armored Saints' first shows. He's an old school wow. metal. <laughs> Look at that! I had no idea that there was a metal connection with Alec Burke. Exactly. Talk uh, about so, the yeah. worlds colliding, right? Exactly. So yeah, so that struck me when I saw that. And then the other thing is, I you know I do a sister podcast called No Prize from God, which is conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. And essentially, the elevator pitch is. You know, when you look at the religion and spirituality category on Apple Podcasts, you're going to see a light 
a lot of new agey self-help stuff, a lot of militant atheism, a lot of right-wing evangelicals. And without disparaging any of those categories, I just thought, well, where's the podcast that like the bad brains would talk about their trip? You know, like where's the, uh, there's so many interesting faith walks and lack thereof out there in pop culture with creative people, uh, be they playwrights, actors, musicians that aren't really served by those very narrow sort of silos, uh, you know, for each, each of those kind of ideological religious perspectives. So I wanted to basically create a space where we could have free and open conversations that without an agenda. And it's less about, oh, I want to do an episode about Mormonism. Let me get a spokesperson for the Church of Latter-day Saints to give me the bullet points. It's more about, I want to talk to someone who's an interesting, creative, weirdo artist and let's hear about what their trip is and their experience with it, a relationship to it, whether they're a kind of fundamentalist adherent to a particular faith or whether they're, you know, somewhere in the margins. And, and that's been really fun. And based on some of your other work, it might be a second conversation for us to have. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be great. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the book, God is a question, uh, yeah. not an answer. I mean, uh, I, I was raised Catholic and, uh, and that was very important to my upbringing. And, uh, basically these days I describe myself as a, as an honest atheist, which is not an anti-theist or, uh, a militant atheist. Uh, and probably a lot of those people would rather categorize me as an agnostic, but sure. basically my, my, uh, my thought on it is that an honest atheist has to have doubts about his or her atheism, just the way an honest believer needs to have uh, doubts about his or her belief. I mean, uh, so so that's that that's sort of my uh, odd, or maybe not so odd, place in the in the whole discussion. And you know, the the topic of of faith and religion continues to uh, to fascinate me. And I like to think I have an open mind uh, about it. I don't consider uh, my so-called honest atheism as a as a settled position. I I could go back to the faith of, uh, of my youth or uh, discover something else. And so like you, it sounds like I'm just interested in those kind of questions. And uh, it's an issue, as you know, that gets taken up in, uh, in the meaning of Metallica when uh, mm -hmm. Hetfield's uh, experience with religion and uh, perhaps what's going on with him now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which uh, is a nice segue into that and yeah i think that you and i are, are probably more similar than we're than we're dissimilar in that uh, you know i spent a, a good portion of my life in pursuit of some kind of certainty and a settled answer to life's big questions and i hit this magnificent turning point or epiphany or evolution whatever you want to call it that the the joy and the real truth of it is in the questioning and in the doubt. And the thing that turns me off about sort of this postmodern atheism or the, uh, you know, the so-called four horsemen of, of atheism is that it, it takes on its own religiosity, you know, where, where not only is it important to be an atheist, but it's important to make converts because uh, religion is the single most destructive force. And, you know, we've got to go out there and deprogram everyone. And it's like, man, you sound really evangelical when making that argument. And, and uh, yeah, for me, I have, I have, you know, tenets of faith that I've hung on to, but I'm really enjoying the exploration and the idea that it, it isn't a settled question in, in, in a lot of ways, particularly with a lot of the nuances. And I think as you, as you put it so well, the more atheists there are who are honest about their doubts and the more believers there are who are honest about their doubts, I think the better conversation that we might be able to have in the world. That's it. I mean, that, that's the, the gist of the book ultimately, right? It, it is that the conversation is what's important and, and sort of mutual respect and, and, and dialogue rather than, as, as you said about other things, uh, siloing, uh, yourself in and uh, what, what what really is the the point of that I mean uh, obviously 
terrible things have been done in the name of various religions and terrible things have been done by atheists. And, and yes, there are potential problems and pitfalls in, in following particular creeds, but my goodness, well, you know, why, why not just have an honest, open uh, discussion about things and try to foster mutual respect? Amen to that. So, <laughs> having written about all these different subjects, and, and I see as disparate as some of those things might seem on a piece of paper, I see a lot of overlaps between them. And, you know, obviously I just drew one between Seinfeld and Metallica and you just drew yeah. between uh, existentialist explorations of uh, spiritual ideas and Metallica. Right. Um, what was the motivation behind making Metallica the focus of this book? Uh, and I would imagine as a writer that there was some uh, the right word is, I don't want to say ease, but having done this type of exploration of other pop culture subjects, you probably have somewhat of a, an idea of how to tackle it and how to present it. But what, what made you choose Metallica as your next subject to explore this way? Yeah, right. So uh, you had mentioned this, the whole series of books that, that I have on uh, different elements of pop culture and philosophy. And th those are all uh, sort of teamwork exercises where uh, I'm editing, but where I have contributions from various other philosophy professors and mm. friends in the academic world. So th this was my sort of solo effort on Metallica. There had been a Metallica and philosophy as there had been a Black Sabbath and philosophy. And uh, Metallica has, has been the, the soundtrack of my life since I'm about 14, I suppose. Not that I don't listen to other bands and other kinds of music as well, but, uh, you know, I've thought through my life and my various personal struggles and issues, uh, largely in dialogue with, uh, with the lyrics of James Edfield and the music of Metallica. And so in a way I've been writing it without even uh, having it in mind to write it in, in my mind for decades, right? Uh, but uh, in, in terms of the, the more proximate cause and, and how the particular book came about, and this may be of interest to you uh, given your interest in, uh, in religion. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was writing a blog post for Psychology Today where, where I blog somewhat regularly on uh, Tara Westover's book, Educated, which you may be familiar with, right? She's raised as a sort of Mormon fundamentalist and has mm -hmm. a sort of uh, really compelling story about that. And as I was writing about it, I was uh, quoting from uh, The God That Failed, uh, which is uh, part of Hetfield's reflections on his upbringing in Christian science. And as I'm writing this, uh, and I'm quoting more and more from Metallica lyrics. It eventually was turning into there never turned there never was a blog post uh, about uh, educated and Tara Westover's book. Uh, it turned into this, where I'm, I'm writing about Metallica and, and religion, implicit critique of religion, and etc. And that that was in its way therapy for me, working through these ideas in, in my mind in dialogue uh, with with the lyrics, and uh, one topic sort of led to the next. And uh, I, I was originally writing it just sort of for myself as a kind of a writing exercise, and you know, with vague, never, without the idea in mind that this would be a book length thing, but maybe this would turn into a few blogs that I would put on Psychology Today, but. Uh, I enjoyed it enough uh, and uh, that, that I just kept going and then showed it to people who, you know, thought it was worth sharing more broadly and, and eventually followed the, uh, the route to trying to get it published in book form. And here we are on a podcast discussing it. So that, yeah. that's the short version of the story. Quite the journey. No, I love that. And, you know, I wish I could remember, I wish I ever knew rather the writer to attribute this to something I read as a kid that stuck with me, but during the satanic panic of the 80s and early 90s, I saw this quote that said, uh, you know, the lyrics of Iron Maiden are more likely to send a kid running to the library than running to the devil. <laughs> and it's, you know, whether it's Alexander the Great or Flight of Icarus or Power Slave or, you know, all this like historical depth that they were mining. You know, Metallica, when it comes to the quote unquote religious side, there's a lot to chew on there. I mean, the God that failed being uh, obviously very prominent in there, but then also things that were biblically inspired, like creeping death. 
And, uh, you know, it, uh, whether it's H.P. Lovecraft or the Bible, there's, um, you know, a lot of literary stuff that's peppered through there. And uh, it's pretty exciting to me, especially in stark contrast to, you know, the, the vision of a metal fan that most people have of as this, you know, lowbrow kind of Beavis and Butthead Hessian type that wants to set things on fire. And while there's certainly an element of that that's fun and celebratory, uh, there are there's plenty to explore. A philosophy person, an academic could write a whole book about Metallica's lyrics, and now one has. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right on. And uh, it, it's interesting right from the beginning, although Kill Em All has lots of sort of fantasy lyrics and we have the phantom mm-hmm. lord and uh, the four horsemen and and all that kind of thing uh it, it it doesn't go the step further that uh a band like slayer does into straight out satanism uh whether it be sort of mock satanism pretend satanism or you know the real thing that gets embraced by some black metal bands and that kind of thing and, and from what i gather the the reason for that right off the bat uh, it was just that Hetfield uh, at that young age already saw it as a cliche and wanted to uh, avoid heavy metal cliches. Although, I mean, you know, he really liked Venom and Merciful Fate and, and bands like that. He, uh, he didn't go that direction. He certainly had his own animus uh, towards uh, organized religion, having been raised a very strict Christian scientist and having his... Uh, mother passed away at age 16 as a result of, uh, of not getting medical attention. Uh, but it, it comes out uh, sort of in between the lines early on, right? The first song where you really see it come out, as you mentioned, is Creeping Death, where it's uh, the telling of the, the story of the exodus uh, from Egypt and, uh, and the sort of killing power of, uh, of God. And, you know, God comes out uh, as a sort of uh, a nasty uh, a nasty figure in that in that story. I mean, he's kind of cool, and you you sort of like him at a distance, like Tony Soprano. But uh, <laughs> he, he's he's not uh, the sort of warm, cuddly uh, god uh, that uh, that you might uh, like to embrace. And I mean, and that story and that song really is rooted in something that James knows very well: uh, the Old Testament stories from from his upbringing. And it becomes you know, a little bit more subtle by the time you get to the uh, uh, Leper Messiah on, uh, on Master of Puppets, where it's a, it's a real indictment of 80s televangelism and uh, the whole money greed uh, equation and, and on from there, right? It becomes much more personal uh, in the song we've referenced a couple of times already, uh, The God That Failed. Yeah, it's interesting that televangelist bent because that uh, was a bit of a a prominent theme addressed by a lot of thrash metal bands right around that time that that was, you know, tabloid fodder. And there were a lot of those scandals happening and so on. You know, suicide. Metallica was was the head of the pack on that. And, and and Lepra Messiah actually pre the writing of it predates Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker and, and really the most high profile fall. So uh, in, Old Testament terms, you could actually consider Hetfield a bit prophetic in uh, <laughs> reading the, uh, yeah. the handwriting on the wall and indicting the uh, the sins of the age. Yeah, that was certainly before South of Heaven, which had Slayer's right. take on it, and and Suicidal, yeah, I think wasn't until much later. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and it's certainly prophetic. You know, I had the opportunity to spend some time with Miles Kennedy a few years ago, and he's on an episode of No Prize from God. And uh, he was also raised in Christian science and his father passed away when Miles was very young from appendicitis Wow! because he wouldn't go to the hospital. Yeah. You know, I had my appendix out. It's a pretty simple procedure as surgeries go. And uh, you know, he just laid up in his room and, and they prayed over it and he died. It doesn't Uh, work for appendicitis. No. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's um, well, and one could argue that, right, that answered prayer comes in the form of the fact that you can go to a hospital. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. I love that parable about there's the guy drowning and uh, a boat comes along and he says, no, no, I'm, I have my faith in God. I've, I've prayed to the Lord to deliver me. 
from this ocean. And so the boat leaves and then a helicopter comes by and offers to pull him up. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm, God's going to save me. I'm praying and praying. Um, I don't need you. All my faith in God. And the guy drowns and he gets to heaven and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I tried. I sent you a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> That's so, it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, so the Christian science thing, it, it yeah, it's it's rough, especially for kids who who grow up try, you know, and Headfield's talked openly about not being able to, you know, you have to go stand outside during health class and things like that that can cause you to be alienated just in terms of your uh, social group and your peers and add a whole bunch of other stuff to that. And it's certainly a recipe for aggression and loneliness and fear and all this stuff that we exercise in metal music yeah yeah and and part of what's fascinating i mean headfield uh, as you know is is pretty close to the vest and doesn't give a lot of personal details but in in his 12-step recovery uh has to have embraced some sort of higher power and of course there are tattoos on him now that are christian imagery but uh, to what extent he, uh, you know, is a, is a believer where, I mean, to what extent he was not a believer. I mean, clearly he rejected the Christian scientist approach, but was he ever an atheist? I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, is he now? Probably not, but yeah. uh, it's fascinating. Uh, and, uh, you know, he hasn't really addressed it in uh, in a song and in, in in a good bit and so who knows what the what the future brings in terms of lyrics and songs yes yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because you know in many ways they are the most inviting intimate uh you know take a look under the hood band in history what you know whether yeah. it's some kind of monster most famously but but just the way from the very beginning that they've had such a close relationship with their audience and years before century media decades before it were very um open about sharing the things they loved and the people that were important to them and so on and yet they've been very uh smartly in many ways uh very guarded and very private about spiritual views and political views i think i think they've been very smart not to really take any uh, other than sort of maybe a broad you know, general sort of humanism, they don't take political stands. And no, it's very smart because it, it, it keeps, a, you know, everyone's welcome. That, no, that, that's right. And I mean, the, the political rock star is one of the most obnoxious creatures uh, on the planet, you know? I mean, at least a lot of them are. Some people do it well, carry it well, but, but it's, it's easily done wrong. And yeah. there, there's a certain amount of, uh, of humility or just good common sense that comes with being in a position where people look to you for your views uh, and not making them prominent because you recognize yourself that you're, you're flawed and that you don't have anything necessarily to say that uh, is authoritative. So staying out of, you know, clear political pronouncements and, religious pronouncements. Uh, so e- even where the, the songs uh, have a political element to them, uh, in particular on, in on Justice for All, mm-hmm. they're, they're told in, in such a, a general way that they're not about a particular politician or you know they, they may be inspired by a particular point in time. Uh, but if you think about uh, Eye of the Beholder, for example, or Shorter, Shorter Straw, I mean, uh, yeah, you, you know that uh, that he's reacting to the to the current moment, but they could as easily be about you know the 1950s and the Red Scare, and yeah, and it could also be about right now, <laughs> and it could be right now, so it remains timely instead of something that you know is a silly artifact of a time gone by. Yeah, as we're speaking right now today, um, Twitter is very upset with the with Ricky Gervais over his Netflix special that just dropped. Uh, oh, really. So- you know, that's another eye of the beholder type situation. The, okay. uh, the vitriol that, that happens around certain types of speech uh, for and against. Right. So when you decide that this is going to be your book, like you said, in, in many ways you've been engaging with this most of your life. So it's kind of 
almost writes itself in that sense. How did you narrow down what what you were going to tackle, what you were going to have to set aside? You know, how did you prioritize? Um, okay, I'm going to devote a lot of focus to this song. Not going to really necessarily have room for this element. Or how did you make those decisions? Yeah, so it, it, it's sort of uh, association of thought, right? So it's it's a book about that focuses on the lyrics of Metallica songs, but it's not a catalog of here is uh, kill them all and we'll go song by song and right. I'll, I'll give you my reading and here's ride the lightning and we'll go sequentially and time wise. And, and instead, because I had started uh, writing about religion and Tara Westover and it turned into this thing about uh, Metallica and religion, uh, I let songs sort of speak to one another thematically across albums, right? So the religion chapter uh, heads from Creeping Death to Leper Messiah to The God That Failed and a couple of others that uh, get worked in there. And uh, the issue that was next raised in my mind in, in talking about the religion issues is, is addiction, which is something that uh, has been treated from album to album, really going back uh, you know, at least as far as Master of Puppets, which itself is a song dealing with addiction. And uh, so that was the next one. And I let songs about addiction speak to one another from uh, across albums. And uh, it just was kind of a conversation that I was having with myself, uh, you know, in my own head about Metallica and letting the lyrics for different songs speak to one another and let the next topic uh, be suggested by the previous topic, right? So addiction can lead into discussion of death and all the songs that talk about death and uh, can lead into uh, talking about war and all the songs that are, that are about war. And then some of the uh, fallout of war, whether it's the, the PTSD that we see in the song Confusion. And it just sort of led naturally that way as, as if I were having a conversation with someone else and how we might have this cool conversation as you and I are having now. And just mm -hmm. one subject, sort of the, the, the conversation takes on a life of its own or a flow of its own and it goes from one to the next. And, you know, so the best uh, compliment that I got about the book and it ended up making its way into the, the description uh, on the back cover was that someone uh, who read the, the rough draft said, oh, I felt like I was having a conversation with you. And awesome. to me, that's that's what it's about, because a good book should be a conversation starter and not a conversation ender. This is not me pronouncing once and for all. Uh, this is what this song is about. Yeah, it's more like let's get the conversation moving about thinking about how we engage with this stuff and what it means to different people. Because, of course, that's part of the power of music, right? And any kind of poetic lyrics, any kind of art, really, is that it is in the eye of the beholder. Let's make a bad pun but that it is about sort of your own experience and, and biases and loves and hates that you bring to uh, any piece of art when you look at it or listen to it or, you know, read it or whatever. So. Sure. That, I mean, that, that's very important. And I can never do justice to somebody else's experience of a song and what it means to them. Uh, there's al almost every song, maybe every song in the Metallica catalog, turns out to be somebody's favorite. I mean, uh, right. and, you know, dealing with Metallica fandom as, as you do so thoroughly, you, you know this, right? That uh, some odd uh, deep track on Reload or St. Anger turns out to be somebody's favorite and is thoroughly meaningful to them. And I can't do justice to that. Uh, and nor would giving, uh, you know, in-depth discussion of why Fade to Black is so important to me, be all that interesting to uh, the, the general reader. So my, my goal was to do something, you know, practically impossible, which was to do my best to get inside the psyche of, of James Hetfield and what he's trying to do uh, with these songs, right? Not every song is about him, obviously, and uh, every song uh, has a sort of a narrator, which is a character that he's inhabiting. Uh, but he, he lets himself sort of bleed through uh, often enough that a, a picture of him uh, as a person and as a songwriter does sort of emerge 
over the course of time. And so, you know, what I offer in the book, uh, you know, in some ways is a portrait of, uh, of Hetfield as the songwriter, the lyrics writer, as best I can put it together. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that I've, uh, I've totally missed some things uh, and totally gotten some things wrong. And so I'm, I'm really, as we said, this is a conversation, the conversation starter in, in the book. I give my email address, my Twitter handle, tell people, get in touch with me, tell me what songs I left out that should have been in there, uh, what uh, interpretation you think I botched, uh, you know, let, let's go for it that way. Uh, let, let's have this conversation and uh, let this just be the beginning. Yeah, well said. And to your point about, you know, some of the later era records, uh, I would absolutely pin the Outlaw Torn lyrically in the right in there in that conversation about uh life's bigger questions and existentialism i mean it's a pretty existentialist uh you know driving late at night uh trying to figure out what it all means and being being frustrated by the uh by the questions and the and the answers or lack thereof uh oh yeah no it absolutely is and that that's a song which I think in many ways is, is a, an inkblot test where I, I've heard so many different responses to it. Uh, so that, that's one of the big uh, missing songs uh, from the book, probably most likely uh, to get me a complaint of how did you not talk about this? <laughs> that, that and Bleeding Me is another one yeah. where, where they really resonate with me and I love them, but I, I just can't seem to pin them down in a way that that you know I, I can explain what's going on the way in which I could with with many of the other songs that they're they're almost more about the feelings they embody uh, and, and they, they sketch something in, in vaguer terms and more evocative terms than uh, giving us a clear storyline or, or, or a crystal clear picture yeah. of the narrator or the character. I'm sure those two songs come up a lot as well because I mean they're the best songs from that whole era. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, all, it just so happens that they also have probably the most evocative lyrics, which is part of what makes those songs so great. Uh, you mentioned Tony Soprano, and before I let that thought pass, is is there a Sopranos? philosophy book in your future there's there's one in the in the distant past actually ah i missed uh, that you google the sopranos in philosophy uh well the, the, it, it's easy to to miss depending on on what you look at because I, i've worked with two different publishers uh over the ah. years and, and that was with my uh, my previous publisher and we actually did the sopranos in philosophy well before the the series ended so it's not like a, a full look at it, uh, but yeah. it's 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 interesting in that the Sopranos has enjoyed renewed popularity and interest. Yeah, especially during the pandemic, that that became a thing, and there were all this podcast that sprung up. But yeah, I've I've been through it probably six times. Really? Yeah, and I have a very close friend who's never watched it. Who I'm I'm about once a week. I'm still messaging <laughs> him like, "Come on, man!" Especially yeah. because he loves a lot of things that are you know in that lineage that. You know, no Sopranos, no Breaking Bad, no Mad Men, no, you know, Better Call Saul. These great shows that are happening now all sort of sprung forth from that. Just like so it's many important funny. metal sometimes bands. Sometimes you, came from you get blocked on something, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's for the most ridiculous reason. Like, like the Sopranos, I probably didn't watch as early as some friends did in the first season or two, just because I thought the title was dumb, The Sopranos. Uh, and I, I resisted Breaking Bad for years too. I thought, That's yeah. a stupid title. I, I, I still resisted think Breaking Bad until until it was almost over, and then once you get in, yeah, I'm. I still uh, resisted uh, Game of Thrones this entire time, and then especially <laughs> fans complain about the end. It's like, well, why would I? Why would I do it now? I'm not going to start it now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might as well watch Lost, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another show where they all hated the end when they got there. Yeah. So this is a, a question that comes up continually and will probably always come up but this whole idea of art and its influence on actions and in, in life you know i am of the opinion that heavy metal and horror movies and violent video games are 
are probably should be credited with preventing a lot of tragedies and violence happening in our world because it's a place to park those feelings and to work out that aggression or that despair or, or whatever it is, you know, privately um, or, you know, with friends or whatever it is, rather than acting on, you know, these urges and impulses that um, some might be predisposed to anyway. Um, as a philosophy-minded person, and as someone who obviously loves metal, you know, where do you sort of fall on that? Because, I mean, you see it come up time and time again. I mean, there's been, you know, unfortunately, this is an evergreen thing to say on a podcast, but there was a mass shooting just today, as we're talking. Um, those are regularly in the news. And oftentimes when that happens, the debates come up again about media and pop culture and, and things that people are consuming and, and sometimes even from the political spectrum of, oh, this person was influenced by this ideology and therefore da 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 And, you know, I describe myself as a free speech absolutist, while at the same time, I recognize that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Um, I, I, I suppose having explored this stuff at some depth in the course of your career, where do you kind of land on that, on you know, the uh, causation, causality, whatever that argument is of this yeah, media I mean, that we consume and, and the stuff that it represents and whether or not it influences people to do things in real life that cause harm. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're certainly right that it should be credited with doing more good than harm. Uh, I mean, clearly you can point to the occasional case where somebody does cite whatever it is, uh, you know, a metal song or a horror movie or something like that. But for most of us, uh, it, it plays the role of, of, uh, of delivering catharsis, right? Where it cleanses us, purges us of anger and pity and fear and, and all of that, at least for uh, a brief period of time. I mean, uh, and it can seem frightening to the outsider in, in, in watching it. I mean, uh, I, I just think back about going, you know, to Metallica shows in the uh, in the 80s uh, and they're playing Creeping Death and, you know, all these people yelling, die, die. I mean, <laughs> to somebody who, who who's the security guard at that who was watching. <laughs> I mean, it's got to seem frightening and uh, really menacing. Right. And occasionally things spill over into, uh, you know, a bit of uh, uh, vandalism uh, or violence and, and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, uh, listen, I mean, the, 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 you, you know who needs to uh, have an eye kept on them uh, in terms of the, the person who has really unhealthy obsession uh, with torturing baby animals and, and things like that, uh, as opposed to indulging uh, in some, uh, you know, some heavy metal or horror or, or, or whatever uh, the case may be. Uh, so as a general causation, I, I'd have to agree with you. It's got to, it's got to do more good than harm. Uh, but, there, you know, obviously there can be the uh, singular case where uh, this was I mean, I don't know. Do you blame Ch the Beatles for Charles Manson uh, right. with Helter Skelter? Yeah, no, but you know, I don't know. Would, would he have uh, done Helter Skelter without the Beatles? I don't know. I mean, he would have done something eventually, right? If, but probably not that specifically. Right? Or even if, or even if you could blame the Beatles for Charles Manson, what about the millions and millions and millions of people who listen to the Beatles who didn't commit? <laughs> yeah yeah or you know right and all the good effect that had yeah exactly uh so you you made me think of an, another interesting point which is that in talking about even the way that it's shifted from probably the time the songs were written and were first performed you know something like creeping death and all of our fists in the air chanting die or, you know, I think about when I think about that part, I think about Jason Newstead and his die, motherfucker, die. <laughs> just his intensity and everything. I, I don't know. Perhaps this was an evolution over the years. But when I think about songs like Battery or Damage Incorporated or that last section of Creeping Death, it's very celebratory. Whereas on a piece of paper, it's violent and threatening and, and dark and intimidating. 
when you're at a Metallica show, whether it's a underplay secret gig with a thousand people or it's, you know, the Rose Bowl, it's very life affirming, you know, it's, and that an, whole it's empowering, thing. right? I, I mean, and, and th think of, of who those songs really spoke to in particular at that time, right? I mean, young, alienated, mostly men, right? Some women, right? I mean, people uh, who were largely outcast, alienated, not the, uh, the cool, popular, rich kids kind of thing. I mean, yeah, it was, it was celebratory. Uh, it was a way of feeling and expressing some power for people who largely didn't have it. Now, uh, a lot of people I think have maybe misinterpreted Don't Tread on Me as a pro-war song. And I think the Black Album kind of coinciding with the Gulf War and and uh, all that sort of thing maybe has, has caused a bit of that. But as we're speaking behind you, there's a quote from, I believe, Thomas Paine. Uh, uh, I can't really make out the, the name, but I can see the quote. That's it. It's Thomas Paine, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's the duty of the patriot to protect his country from his government. I would, I would imagine perhaps when it comes to ideas about liberty that you have some, that's another place of uh, commonality and connection that you might feel with Hetfield and his lyrics. Oh yeah, for, for sure. And, it, and it, it's really interesting to see the, uh, the connection between the white album and justice for all and the black album uh, Metallica on that score, right. Where, uh, and justice for all is is very critical of America, uh, but it's done from a place of love. I think patriotism, right, uh, scorning the uh, the justice system and its corruption through money, uh, drawing attention to the uh, the censorship that uh, you know that we find. Uh, but then, then you come uh, to, to the Black Album and, and it takes a, a much more uh, sort of positive uh, view of the United States. And, and, and it's not uh, a change of mind uh, or a turnaround, but, but really just a, a, a difference in emphasis. I mean, mm. uh, the, uh, the word that's missing, uh, notably from the title Injustice for All is Liberty Injustice for All. Uh, and uh, Don't Tread on Me is all, is all about liberty. Uh, and it's not uh, really a pro-war song. It was actually written before the Gulf War, though the time uh, of its release uh, was close to coinciding with it. And uh, it's not uh, calling for us to be uh, aggressors, but simply not to be doormats. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think not only is there an emphasis on, uh, on personal and individual freedom, as you see in songs from Escape through Unforgiven, through Wherever I May Roam, uh, but there is a real emphasis on uh, on personal uh, and individual liberty mm. uh, within uh, America. Yeah. So having spent so much time with these lyrics, you know, one of the great things about songs or movies or any great piece of art that you, uh, you know, work on continually and, and listen to, experience, watch, whatever you know, me rewatching The Sopranos, there's always new things that reveal themselves. Was, what can you tell me were maybe some things that surprised you or that you learned through this process of writing this book with maybe how you engaged with certain songs of like, oh, I, never, I actually never realized that this is saying this year or, you know, were there, were there any kind of eureka moments like that where you made discoveries? Yeah, yeah that kind of thing happened. And, uh, uh, oddly enough, the, the way that I, I, I kept the songs fresh in mind, I mean, as probably as you, I've listened to these songs hundreds, thousands of times. It's hard to even figure out how, how many times some of them mm -hmm. I've listened to. And the last thing I wanted to do in writing this book was to, uh, was to ruin the songs for me by playing them out too much. Uh, you know, you get this sort of listener fatigue for, certain songs after a while. So what I did was uh, was memorize the lyrics and I would sing them to myself. 
Uh, sometimes, and I have nobody's idea. I know you're a singer. I can't sing. I can't carry a tune. I'd sing them in the shower. I'd sing them walking the dog. I'd sing them in my head. Uh, but that, 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 that was my way of doing it, but it was a nice way of sort of reverse engineering the songs in a certain way and hear them, uh, differently than just passively listening to them. And I, I guess the one that, that, uh, struck me most was the Unforgiven 2, which I, I had never paid tremendous attention to, uh, like the original quite a lot. And I was intrigued, uh, by Unforgiven 3 when that came out and I had to figure out how these all go together. And, uh, you know, I, I saw the connection between, uh, Unforgiven 2 and, uh, nothing else matters and that these are two of the rare songs where you have a sort of a love theme going on. Mm -hmm. But what I hadn't realized and what becomes clear as I uh, pay attention to the lyrics is that in Unforgiven 2, he ends up killing uh, the girl. Uh, and I, I, I just pull in the, the book with the lyrics uh, in front of me to make sure I get this right. But, but here are the lines where it, it becomes clear to me. It says, come beside me. This won't hurt. I swear she loves me not. She loves me still, but she'll never love again. She lay beside me, but she'll be there when I'm gone. Black heart scarring darker still. Yes, she'll be there when I'm gone. Yes, she'll be there when I'm gone. Dead sure she'll be there. Uh, and then wow. later in the song is the line, I'll take this key and I bury it in you because you're unforgiven too. Uh, it, it seems very clear to me that uh, either the narrator kills the woman, I think probably because of an infidelity as a, the way that I read the song, that he's so damaged, so broken uh, that he can't deal uh, with that. Or at the very least, uh, the narrator is imagining uh, that, he, uh, that he kills the woman. So. Wow. Yeah. See, I'd, I'd, I'd never, I've listened to that song a million times, like you said, and I never had that interpretation of those few lines, but I can certainly see a compelling case to be made there. Uh, so with this Metallica book uh, finished and out there and people getting a chance to read it, what would have been, you know, like you said, you are, you're very out there, your email address is in there, your Twitter handle, you've been, you've done interviews about the book. What have been some of the more common uh, responses that you've gotten from it and anything surprising or wacky or or crazy that you didn't expect no not, not nothing uh too surprising uh i i got a, a nice twitter message from someone just the other day talking about the song uh cure uh which doesn't get a lot of discussion in the uh, in the book but i i interpret it with the uh the silver bullets being uh Coors light silver bullets that uh, he's trying to drink the light stuff and uh, ultimately the cure being uh, an attempt at 12-step sobriety and uh, skepticism and in entering into that. And it's just a sort of a passing moment in the book and uh, not one that I felt super confident about. It's, it could be seen as a stretch, but uh, someone uh, contacting with me and saying, yeah, I never thought about that. And that seems just right. So, uh, you know, Hopefully, uh, someone else will contact me and say, "You know what? That can't be right because, because it's of, actually about this." And here's my yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but but that's the kind of uh, thing that I'm looking forward to hearing more and more of. Hopefully, the book is is relatively newly out, and people need a chance to to get it and read it. But uh, those are the conversations uh, I'm eager to have. Now, in your writing process, are you moving on to the next book? once this is off to the publisher or do you kind of take a breath and wait through, through the whole kind of release cycle of a book before starting the next one or how does that usually go for you? Yeah, it, it, it really depends. Uh, th this one was written a, a, a good little while ago, I think uh, 2019, 2020, when I was doing most of the writing of it and uh, the slow wheels of, uh, of the publishing industry before it came out. So I've been active uh, writing other things since then. Uh, I was fortunate to have uh, a sabbatical year during uh, the height of COVID. So I didn't have to do a lot of the uh, sort of uh, hybrid teaching that a lot of my colleagues did. And 
during that sabbatical year, I, I took the uh, the time to write some poetry, which is something that I've uh, always wanted to do and, and never have uh, fully gotten back to. So I've, I've published a couple of little books of poetry. And so, you know, I like to dabble in different things. That's cool. Yeah, that, I think that that keeps all the things you work on exciting, more things that you can be passionate about. Yeah, and I dart yeah. around like a hummingbird between all of them. It's been my, right. my experience. That's right. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, dude, this has been a super fun conversation. I had a feeling that it would be. Love to uh, talk some existentialism and our our uh, mutual. I had Irish Catholic on my father's side and Presbyterian on my mom's side growing up. And oh yeah, my own whole journey with everything. So um, yeah, we'll have, yeah. To, we'll have to do this again to- in another format. Definitely. I would love to. I appreciate the interest and uh, appreciate the, the conversation. Yeah, for sure, man. Talk Sopranos and Seinfeld and anything with and you. Alec Berg. Awesome.